I recently had an interesting plane trip, a long one, over 20 hours there and, and back, and have an opportunity to think about a lot of things you probably shouldn't be thinking about uh, during all that time. But um, we had a, a situation on the first leg of our flight, which was eight hours long, of a <clears throat> couple sitting be, behind us and just to the side of us one row, had uh, twin six-month-olds, <laughs> who I think had ear infections or something. <clears throat> that eight-hour flight took three days, I think. <laughs> and the baby's crying, and I look back at the dad who's holding one of them, and Casey didn't know. I said, there's a, you know, in the restroom there, there's a baby changing station. And uh, before long, he got up and went in there. But to my utter dismay, he came back with the same kid. <laughs> it's a baby changing station. He had the same one. <clears throat> Then I go, get up to go to the bathroom. There is this sign above the commode in all bold letters. Only toilet paper allowed in toilet. Only <laughs> toilet paper. I'm looking around. Where are you supposed to go? <laughs> Only toilet paper. I'm telling you, I had too much time to think. <laughs> so we, we finally get ready to land. We got to change planes. And somebody comes on the speaker saying, um, you know, we're getting ready to land for your departure gate and flight information look on the ground when we arrive so we arrive and I'm looking all over the ground there are no monitors on the ground like they promised all the monitors are up in the air right, on the walls and hanging from the ceiling there are none on the ground and I got to thinking about how we when we think we're communicating something we, the way the other person receives it may be warped, like my mind is. <laughs> and so, now wondering, even going through this series, how much, you know, I think this is what I'm meaning to say, but is this what you're hearing? Is what you're receiving back? And it was helpful last week to have some interaction about these things, and even uh, since last weekend, uh, I've had some people give some helpful interactions. We talk, we've talked about the covenant of, uh, or the statement of commitment and what that might look like. We just had a sample last week. Uh, I think there might be some, Renee, are there some in the back table there? Yeah, they're, they're not in the bulletin this week, but if you didn't get one last week, there's a table in the back of the sanctuary here. You can pick up a copy of that. And just to remind you, it's just a, just a working piece. It's not a finished product, and it's... Um, Definitely a work in progress. Um, but keep giving us feedback 
as you read through that and pray through that about, about what you think. Uh, so today is kind of the, um, the follow-up message of last week as we started looking at the covenant of love. And we, of course, looked at the Old Testament covenant uh, and, and all the things we see that were built into the covenants in the Old Testament and how that, how that is uh, like the New Testament covenant in a lot of ways. There's some, some continuity of ideas. And we saw that in all the covenants, uh, there, there are two ideas being, being put forth. First of all, to mark off or identify a people for God. These are my people. These are not my people. But these are, of all the people of the earth, these are my people. So it marks off, identifies the people of God. And secondly, it establishes the kingdom or rule of God over those marked off people. We looked at how that worked through specific covenants like the Abrahamic covenant, and Mosaic covenant, and Davidic covenant. And we won't go through that again today. But then as we come to the New Testament, we have a new covenant that is through Christ, and it is uh, especially through the blood of Christ. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, and God establishes his, His covenant with us through the death of His Son. So Christ is the mediator, as Hebrews says, of a better covenant, an, an everlasting covenant. The church is the new covenant people of God. As we talked about throughout the Bible, God's always been marking off a people, whether it's one person, Abraham, or a nation like Israel. It is the church, the people of God, that he has marked off in the new covenant. Um, and we saw in 1 Peter 2, a couple passages here uh, as examples. This new covenant union that we have is a threefold union. We, we talked about it being uh, united to Christ representationally. And that big word just means that we are identified with who Christ is and what he has done. We identify with who Christ is. He is the Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. We call ourselves Christ ones, Christians. We, we belong to him. He has set his name upon us. We identify with who he is. He is our God. But we also identify with what he has done. He died in our place. He said, because I live, you shall live. And we identify in lots of ways with what he has accomplished on our behalf. Um, and now we get to the third point, the local church covenant. We come to think about, well, how does this idea of a covenant and the, the new covenant that we have in Christ, how does, how does that impact our mutual commitment and bond that we have with each other that we might call a covenant or at least a statement of commitment to each other? What is our, what is our commitment to each other? Well, God uses that, that bond that he brings us into for these five purposes I want to address this morning. First of all, to identify a people with God. And this, of course, goes along with one of the main purposes of all the covenants through the scripture is to set off or mark off, a, identify people with God. To, so to identify a people with God, just a couple of reminders of some 
Old Testament verses as you turn to Acts 9, which will be in just a minute. <clears throat> but just to remind you of uh, Jeremiah 31, which talks about the, the promised new covenant that, that uh, God would enact in the time of uh, the Messiah. Jeremiah 31, 33, for instance, says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their heart. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. As we saw in 1 Peter 2 last week, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so those of us who have been born again, who have received the mercy of God, are now the people of God. We are marked out people. Uh, we identify with God as a people of God. <clears throat> the, the people of God are, the, in the New Testament, are identified with God because we are united to Christ. That's what unites us together really is Christ himself and in fact look how our Lord talks about this in Acts chapter 9 when Saul this same guy who later became Paul of course when Saul uh, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that was a, an early term for the church. Though that group of believers were just called the people of the way because Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And because they were so fond of saying that Jesus is the way, they became called people of the way. Uh, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Me. Why are you persecuting me? It just says that Paul is <clears throat> breathing threats and murder against the, the disciples of the Lord, the people who are of the way. And Jesus restates it. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 9. Years later, Paul, writing to the Corinthians, 
talks about that time in his life this way. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You see, it, it could be put either way and be true. He was persecuting Jesus and he was persecuting the church because the church and Jesus are not separate entities, but rather he is the head and the church is the body and they are connected forever. They're united forever. The reason we are identified with God is through Christ. It is he who unites us together forever. He calls us himself. Persecuting the church is the same thing as persecuting him. <clears throat> so a body of believers meeting together in Christ's name is not to be taken lightly. This is not just an assembly for the sake of uh, fellowship, although that's great, or for worship, though we love to worship and it's our responsibility and joy to exalt God and worship Him. We're not just gathering together, but we are constituted the body of Christ, the church of God. We are so identified with Him by Christ's own words that He says we are Him because He's the head and we are the body. A local church is where you identify yourself with the people on whom God has set his royal name. Secondly, the second purpose is uh, to distinguish God's people from the world. To distinguish God's people from the world. Well, in the Old, Tef Old Testament covenants, that was obvious that for, in a number of ways how the nation of Israel was set aside from the nations of the world. Uh, they were Sabbath keepers. Um, they, they practiced circumcision, uh, which God said would be a, an ongoing uh, sign that they were separate. They, they followed certain dietary restrictions. They could only eat what was kosher. And um, that really marked them off from other people in the world. They, the way they worshipped was different from anyone else in the world. And more importantly, who they worshipped was different from anyone else in the world. And in a number of ways, Israel was distinct from the rest of the world. And sometimes, often, they were looked down upon by the other nations, regarded lightly because they do these crazy things and feel constrained to and restrained by their, their laws and their God. But it distinguished God's people from the world. Well, we see that also in the New Testament covenant. Look, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Second Corinthians 6, and uh, we'll start at verse 14. <clears throat> Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? 
And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Now, this is a, a wonderful passage for us to remember in all our dealings in life, and often it is... It is applied on an individual level. For instance, you might um, warn a young person you shouldn't be dating a believer because you don't want to enter into some kind of a bond or an agreement or certainly not a marriage with an unbeliever. Uh, it could be used of a business person who's going into business with someone is that partner, someone who is a believer or not. You don't want to enter into a contract or agreement with someone who's not a Believer. Well, and those are good applications of this. But I want to remind us that this was written not just to individuals who had no connection with each other, but to individuals who are connected together. In other words, this, this passage is written to the church. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in Achaia Achaia is a region around Corinth so to, to the church of God located there at Corinth so it's talking about a, a local church so this is being written to a church now when we Think about this passage anew, not just thinking about how this relates to my individual relationships, but how, how does this apply to a body of believers? How does this apply to a church that do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And so forth. How does that apply to a church well simply talking about geography here he's talking about identity he's not telling them as individuals or as a church to ignore the people in their community to ignore those who are around them uh, uh, but the church he is saying, must not enter into any kind of a, an accord or fellowship or communion or partnership with unbelievers that would tempt those unbelievers to think they belong to God. There must, must be such a distinction between 
these are my people, this is the church, and these are not the church. This is light, this is darkness. These are of Christ, these are of Belial, or the devil. That there's such a clear distinction that people who are not in the light won't think that they are. That people who are not part of Christ will not be tempted to think they belong to Christ. There's such a line of demarcation that that would be evident to unbelievers and to ourselves lest we be tempted to think we are of the world. There's such a line of of demarcation here. Uh, Verse 17. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. So, since you are my people, he says in verse 16 and reiterates in verse 18, he sandwiches that with verse 17, therefore, be separate, be distinct from them. Now, while we're here, Go back one chapter to 2 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are We have the ministry of reconciliation, the word of reconciliation, which we take to those who are in the darkness. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have set up an embassy on earth in the kingdom of darkness, and from this embassy, we go out as ambassadors representing the king. Now, here's the thing. If you you think about this, uh, 18 through 20, uh, this outreach that we are to have, this purposeful outreach, and then compare that with verse 17 of chapter 6. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. I will receive you. That might seem at first like a contradiction. I mean, in one hand, we are, we're told to... M- Mark out clearly the boundary so you know what's light and what's darkness, what's of Christ and what is not, what is of heaven, what is of the world. Mark those lines clearly. And be separate. But then, he had already said, go out to them and be with them and bring the word of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation, be ambassadors to them. How can both those things be true? Well, Here's the idea. 
We are to be salt and light in the world, right? From Matthew 5. You're salt and light. But what did Jesus say happens to salt when, it's, when it loses its saltiness? No good. Might as well cast it out and it'll be trampled underfoot. When salt has lost its saltiness, it's no good. So salt has to be, have a distinct flavor. And, and so we need to be distinct from the world in order to be able to bring a message of hope to the world. If we look just like the world, what have we to offer them? What have we to say to them? So be separate, pursue righteousness, live in the light, walk in the spirit, so that you can be salty and have an influence on those who are outside. The same thing with, with light. If, if light is just hid under a basket, then it's just dark. There may be some weak light emitting from it, but that's not the purpose of light. The light is to shine in the darkness. Light is distinct from darkness, isn't it? And that's the idea. Remain distinct from darkness. If you, if you put out the light, you put it under a basket, it's no different than the darkness. So to have influence in the world, we have to be distinct from the world. So what Paul's saying here is not a contradiction. It goes completely hand in hand. God distinguishes his people from the world for the sake of using the people to bear witness to them. We'll get to that more later. So, uh, to, to, be, to maintain the distinctness, there, has to be, there have to be lines drawn. Uh, a marked off people. The Holy Spirit does not work through uh, does not work separate from his people he works through a separated people the third point is um, to provide the grounds for personal and corporate righteousness to provide the grounds for personal and corporate righteousness one of the main purposes God uh, uses covenants for is to communicate to his people how to live. So if you think just briefly about the Mosaic covenant, we usually tie the Mosaic covenant with the law of given through Moses, the law and the commandments, and telling people this is how to live in light of who I am. You are my people. I am your king. Here's how you live. Well, it's, it's true also in the new covenant as a new covenant people of God gathered together in his name he uses his, his covenant to, to guide us in how to live so as we uh, um, continue here at 1 Corinthians uh, excuse me 2 Corinthians 6 verse uh, 17 again therefore come out from among them and be separate says the Lord do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, by the way, the same name that he used to define himself to Abraham. I am the Lord Almighty. Therefore, look at chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> it's really an unfortunate chapter break here. 
that this chapter 7 verse 1 really goes with the previous part therefore here's a conclusion drawn from what he's just said at the end of chapter 6 therefore having these promises that is be a distinct separate people and I will, I will be with you and I will bless you therefore having these promises beloved let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God it's not just a matter you see of saying we are of the light and that's darkness out there and they're filthy they're they're sinful they're trouble <laughs> it's rather looking at the inside too and saying you know we're not perfect yet therefore let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness that means keep on working towards holiness till it's complete till it's perfected not, not that you're there yet but you keep working toward holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Uh, a church that is set aside for God is set aside for the greater purpose of pursuing His righteousness for His glory. In light of the, the New Testament covenantal call to righteousness what does this mean for a church then for a body of believers coming together does it mean that you show up at a church one day and say I meet the qualifications and the answer to that of course is yes and no it's complicated but it's both yes and no you see, if you go back again to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God takes away our sin and puts it on Christ and he nails it to the cross Colossians 2 says God takes Christ's righteousness and covers us with it that's the idea we looked at in Romans 3 about justification justification means to be declared righteous God says based on what my son has done your belief in him you are declared judicially forensically righteous so on one hand it's true a person if they, if they do belong to Christ if they show up and say I meet the qualifications to become part of this body well that is true not based on them but based on the righteousness of Christ if they are a believer uh, look at chapter 3 verse 18 same book But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So we are, as we behold the glory of the Lord especially as we see it in 
the scriptures, we, we, we behold the glory of who Christ is and what he did in these words of the Bible, we are being transformed, and the Holy Spirit is doing this, being transformed from one level of glory to the next level of glory to the next level of glory towards righteousness, towards Christ-likeness. So on the one hand, we are declared righteous judicially, but practically in our lives, we know we haven't reached there yet. And so we are growing in righteousness. It's also called the sanctification process. So as we come together as a church, we recognize other people who, who are pleading Christ alone for their righteousness. And we join together with them. But not just to say, okay, we're all we're righteous in Christ, but what do we do for each other? It is this becoming righteous part. It's this growing spiritually part that makes it so important to realize that, that God uses his church as a means to help us onward in both our personal and corporate righteousness. He uses our gathering together, our, our meeting together, our fellowshipping together, our reading the Bible together, studying the Bible together, worshiping together. He uses all those things as a means for helping us onward in our pursuit of righteousness. So we come together as a church, one, declaring his righteousness, as we, we did a few moments ago in song, that he is our righteousness. So we come declaring his righteousness, but secondly, seeking his righteousness. We do both. We come declaring his righteousness and seeking his righteousness. And when we come seeking his righteousness, we realize we cannot do it alone. We were never meant to go it alone. We need each other. For example, aren't you glad it's not just you and me here today? This would be a very long time. But we, we need each other, the fellowship with each other, the interaction, the going through a Bible study together, praying for one another. We, we need each other, and God has designed it that way. And so we're in a spiritual battle, perfecting holiness, going towards holiness, and it's an upward, narrow way, isn't it? not an easy way and so we come willing to to sign over our lives because we know that we must ally with a band of brothers and sisters in waging war against the the world the flesh and the devil we must do this together the the church is a group of people who have pledged their lives to, to fight together in the divine revolution. We stand as light in the darkness, and to keep the light going and bright, we need to stand together. It's like when you have one little candle over here and another little candle over here, another there, they can each be easily extinguished. But when you bring them together, it makes a bigger light, and they give each other light. Fourth purpose is this, <clears throat> to provide an earthly witness for God. 
And we've already seen in 2 Corinthians 5 that we are ambassadors for Christ. We have the ministry of reconciliation. Now, look uh, briefly at uh, Matthew 28. Uh, the Great Commission, of course. I just want to point out one uh, particular part of this Great Commission in Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 18. <clears throat> and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Jesus has all authority in heaven on earth and on earth. And, and he says, now therefore, in, in light of that, since I have all authority, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them whatever I've commanded you. And I am, and lo, I'm with you always as you go. So he, he, the one who has all authority, is giving that to his people. You have the authority to go in my name. Like, like an ambassador has the authority to represent a king or a president or a country. We have, are giving the authority to be his witness on earth. So God takes a group of people who were at one time enemies at him, of his at war with him and he, he takes them and, and changes them to to love him and to love one another and then he sends them out as a witness to the world this is what God can do therefore we, we come together as a church not just to worship together but to model for the world what redemption is how God works and to reach out to the world with the love and message of Christ and we want to go on to the fifth point which is to identify God's people with one another and we started with identifying a people with God but as a an implication from that it is to identify God's people with each other for instance, we are the family of God. As we have seen earlier, one of the main purposes of a covenant, including the new covenant, is to mark off a people of God and identify them with God. So we take on his name, we belong to him. Because God is our father, we are brothers and sisters in Christ forever. In fact, brethren is the most common used term in the New Testament for believers. By far, that was the term that they preferred uh, to uh, call each other by, brothers or brethren. In fact, just in the book of Acts alone, believers are referred to as brethren or brothers 51 times. One time as Christians. So they, they saw themselves as part of the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, secondly, there's, a, there's mutual accountability. Look at Galatians 6, 1 and 2. <clears throat> so it says, in identifying God's people with one another, not only is there the, the blessing of being part of 
a family of God, but also there is mutual accountability. Galatians 6, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. <clears throat> and then verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of God. Um, we won't take time today to really flesh out what verses 1 and 2 here mean. It's a tremendous responsibility that we have for each other in the spiritual realm to hold each other accountable, to restore each other in a spirit of gentleness and uh, to bear each other's burdens. We, it's a mutual accountability. Uh, so, so how and where does this mutual ministry happen? It's in the context of a local church. It's as we come together and discover each other's needs and meet each other's needs and help each other grow. It is the place, the family, the, the body, where you and I come together to be accountable to each other. Not just to worship together, not just to fellowship together, but we come to be accountable to one another. I ask you, will, will you watch over my soul? Will you do that for me? Will, will you watch over my soul? Will you help guide me in the truth of God? Will you hold me accountable when I stray? Will you loving me, lovingly call me to righteousness? Will, will you encourage me in my walk? Will you help me up when I fall? Will you pray for me and for my spiritual well-being? That's what I need from you, and that's what I need to give to you. I need to watch over your soul. I, I need to help you on towards righteousness. When I or Jeremy or one of the elders talk to you about maybe being involved in a certain ministry or taking a certain class, or, or it's not just a suggestion out of the blue it's that we care for your souls and we are, we're more interested in the, your spiritual well-being than anything else in fact we will give an account for it as Pastor Jeremy mentioned a couple weeks ago but we are all accountable to each other bear one another's burdens Does, does anyone here have a Costco or Sam's Club membership? Have one of those? So you are a member of, uh, let's say, Costco. And what privileges does that membership entail? How, how do you interact with other members of Costco? I mean, you're joint members with other people who are there. You walk in and you are, they're members too of Costco. How do you interact with them? Uh, do you hold each other accountable? Don't buy that. <laughs> well, 
You see, that's how many people view church. Like belonging to a Costco or something. Yeah, we're members together at the, and we happen to meet at this place. But what kind of interaction is there? What kind of accountability is there? What accountability do I feel for you or you feel for me? For one another? Church is much more than joining others and trying to get the best bargain in town. We, we don't come here because it's the best deal in town. It is. <laughs> but that's not why we come. It's because we are united in Christ and accountable to one another. Our commitment to each other is because we are united in Christ. Because we are called together as a family. Because we are accountable to each other's spiritual well-being. That becomes the very essence of what it means to do church together. In fact, Jonathan Lehman makes this bold statement. The local church exists when Christians commit to giving one another authority over themselves. If I want to be accountable to you, I'm placing myself under your authority. And we are all under the authority of this word, right? And under the authority of Christ who is the head. We hold each other accountable to this. It's, so it's not just each other's opinion, but what does God say? It's uh, considering others before yourself, putting others before yourself, putting yourself under others voluntarily for the sake of the growth of the body. Um, another purpose is making the, the invisible visible. 1 Corinthians 12. We're almost done here, so just hang on a little bit more. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13. In a few weeks, I'll be, I'll be preaching this whole passage of 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll get into more detail. I just want to point briefly something out in verse 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body is one and has many members... But all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greek, slaves or free, we have all been made to drink into one Spirit. So, verse 13, by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's Spirit baptism. That's, that happens at the moment of salvation when a person places their their faith or trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, then they are at the moment placed into the body of Christ forever. They become part of the body of Christ. Well, that is something you can't see, right? It's invisible. It's a spiritual reality that is invisible to the naked eye. It's more real than anything you can see, but it's visible. Well, to make the invisible, visible, God has given us ordinances like baptism. When a person is baptized in a local church, 
they, they're giving testimony to the fact that they became Christians. I have believed in Jesus Christ. I place my faith and trust in, in, the, in him alone. Uh, last month, Pastor Jeremy baptized a, a few people, and I remember him saying just be, before he put them under the water, based upon your profession of faith in Christ, I now baptize you. So the baptism doesn't make them a Christian, right? Doesn't make a person a Christian, doesn't save anyone. But it is a, it is a physical um, ordinance, a physical way of demonstrating what has spiritually already happened, placed into the body of Christ, aligned with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So it's, it's a way of making visible the invisible. So is communion, which we are going to partake of in, in just a moment. Uh, in fact, if guys are going to serve communion, go ahead and come forward. Um, the, the Lord's Supper is like that as well. We, we, the body and blood of Christ, and not in a physical way of real flesh and blood, symbolic way, and God has given this to us as a symbol a visible symbol of a spiritual reality that we have partaken of the, the body and the blood of Christ. So it makes the, the invisible visible. Now think about this. Churches where this happens, these, these markers of a church boundary, baptism and, and the Lord's Supper, you don't have baptism at work. Well, I do. But normal people don't have baptism at work. Or, or you don't have communion with your bowling team. Right? That's something different. We come together saying, this is what marks us off as the people of God. Baptism showing that we became uh, united with Christ forever through who He is. And placed in the body by the Spirit. And, and the Lord's Supper to remind us every time we partake of it, we are being perfected by Christ who gave himself for us. And so it's in light of this that we come together as a, as a church proclaiming our unity in him. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And now we are going to take bread in remembrance of what our Lord did in giving his body.